Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 98. We'll begin with a brief summation of Isaiah's chapters 32 through 35 and follow the consideration of desert similes, wordplay, and the ultimate evil. (laughs) Here we are, the end of days. In chapter 32 and 33, Ishayahu introduces us to yet another cluster of prophecies about the end times, which brings to the fore yet again the same kind of problems one has when one reads these prophecies, of which we read a whole bunch in chapters 29 and 30, and those problems usually are historical. What historical period is the prophecy referring to, and did Yeshayahu actually say them? Here, too, we have the same dynamic at play. We sink into the awful tribulations that precede redemption, but are eventually elevated by the salvation. So we can divide chapters 32 and 33 as follows. Chapter 32, verses 1 through 8, portray the just society with a righteous king who will lead righteously. Verses 9 through 14, a critique of, quote, carefree women. Feeling good about yourself, feeling carefree. Which I guess don't deal with the end of days, but feeling good about yourself. Verses 15 through 20 focus on peace and righteousness. Everyone will live in peace. Donkeys and oxen can range freely. Jeez, those donkeys should feel free to range, but must they be so noisy? Chapter 33 consists of wisdom, selections of mizmorim, psalms, and prophecies about distress and salvation. Jerusalem will be bedecked in glory. Quote, even the lame shall seize booty. Another word for pirate treasure. Well, I think it's booty. 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 That's what it is. Yes. And no one will get sick, and all sins will be forgiven. Listen to that for hours. Okay, okay, okay. Chapters 34 and 35 form a distinct unit. Ishayahu opens up a can of whoop ass on the Gentiles, especially Edom, and follows with another chapter on the salvation of the Jews and their return to Zion. But it seems that this can of whoop ass does not belong to Ishayahu, even the most conservative of scholars does not think that the style and content of these chapters aligns properly with Yeshayahu's usual fare. Some have argued that stylistically, these two chapters resonate with chapters 13 and 14 in Isaiah, as well as chapters 50 and 51 in Jeremiah. Perhaps they are a product of the same author, although others have argued that these chapters would fit well with chapters 40 through 61, otherwise known as Deutero-Isaiah, the work of an anonymous exilic author. And they posit that, in fact, these two chapters were the introductory chapters to Deutero-Isaiah, but that a later author shoehorned three chapters about Sancheirib's campaign against Judah in between. So we're talking about the period of the second half of the 6th century BCE. That's 550 BCE to 501 BCE. I always confuse the numbering when I'm talking BCE. Although other scholars would date these chapters in the middle of the 5th century BCE, that is 450 BCE. 
Some push it even earlier to the 4th century BCE, and some scholars argue that we're talking about the period of the Hasmoneans, specifically the reign of John Hyrcanus, the end of the 2nd century BCE, like around uh, 105 BCE. And then there are those scholars that do not even regard these two chapters as being a unit. I'm really going to get that deep into the weeds here. Suffice to say, uh, there's a stack of paper like eight feet high, and that is nine or ten inches higher because of this debate. Chapter 34 is a prophecy of rage. Quote, Approach, O nations, and listen. Give heed, O peoples. Let the earth and those in it hear, the world and what brings it forth. For the Lord is angry at all the nations, furious at all their hosts. He has doomed them, consigned them to slaughter. And the primary target of the Lord's wrath is Edom. Quote, From my sword shall be drunk in the sky. Lo, it shall come down upon Edom, upon the people I have doomed. And God's wrath is apocalyptic. God himself is doling out the beatdowns. But one gets the sense that Yeshayahu or whomever is not talking literally about Edom, but about evil in the world and how God will ultimately defeat it. And the descriptions are graphic, quote, Their slain shall be left lying, and the stench of the corpses shall mount, and the hills shall be drenched with their blood. As dark and dire as chapter 34 is, chapter 35 is light and airy. It's about rescue and redemption, quote, The arid desert shall be glad, the wilderness shall rejoice, and shall blossom like a rose. It shall blossom abundantly, it shall also exult and shout, it shall receive the glory of Lebanon, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They shall behold the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. And the chapter concludes with this image of ultimate redemption, quote, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come with shouting to Zion. Crowned with joy everlasting, they shall attain joy and gladness while sorrow and sighing flee. Ah, <sighs> how nice. Thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. Like those earlier sections in the book of Isaiah where all the short prophecies and pronouncements are kind of thrown together into one chapter because of a thin thematic connection, this episode will be a tasting menu, a series of small courses, three items that captured my fancy in this episode's portion. And so, our first course, poetry. There are some passages in this episode's portion that resound with resplendent imagery from the desert, the wind, the water, sun, and rock. A desert is defined as a landscape form or region that receives very little precipitation, specifically an average annual precipitation of less than 250 millimeters or about 10 inches per year. Now all deserts don't look like Tatooine, rolling pristine sand dunes. Those are true deserts where vegetation cover is exceedingly sparse. They are hyper-arid, hot and dry, ranging from 20 to 25 degrees centigrade. At the extreme, hot deserts are hot, 43 to 49 degrees centigrade. Hot deserts usually have very little rainfall and are concentrated rainfall in short periods between long, rainless periods. Hot deserts have some low plants. Almost all are ground-hugging shrubs and short, woody trees. The only animals that can survive in the biome do so because they burrow under the ground. They only come out at night when it's a little cooler. In chapter 32, similes abound. I'm looking particularly at verse 2. Verse 2 is looking at the wise and righteous king and his ministers. These leaders and their wise counsel will make everyone feel secure and safe, like, quote, a refuge from gales, a shelter from rainstorms, like brooks of water in a desert, like the shade of a massive rock in a languishing land. 
In the desert there are many perils. The wind can parch you, bury you in sand, make whole cities disappear, and whip you in a storm, especially in the flat open stretches where there is no shelter. And the eastern slopes of mountains where the winds descend from the peak at full force, sometimes 90, sometimes 100 kilometers per hour. So imagine how good it would feel to find a shelter someplace out of the gale to protect you or a shelter from the flash flooding that appears suddenly in the wadis, sweeping away everything in their path, or discovering your lips parched, cracked, a source of water to slake your thirst. Or a bit of shade under a rock, a welcome break from the sun beating down on you. The four images from this verse, the refuge from wind, the shelter from rain, finding water and shade from the sun, they parallel the four seasons. The refuge from wind is reminiscent to fall, where all the vegetation wither and die and the ground hardens. This facilitates the east wind to blast and storm and raise dust that covers the sun. Flash flooding is typical of winter when it rains in the land of Israel. In spring, following the rains, there are numerous sources of water that can be found in the desert. Finding shade from the sun is a summer phenomenon where the land is tired from being baked in the heat. Each phenomenon also strikes at a particular sense, the eye, the ear, and the tongue. The wind and dust stings the eye, clogs the nostrils, and makes breathing difficult. During the winter, the flash floods rage and crash, like thunder in the ear. In the summer, the burning dryness dries the tongue and makes it stick in the mouth. But apparently, if you think about dill pickles, your mouth fills with saliva. Try a Vlasic pickle. Why, thank you, dear. And now the second course. Some wordplay. Chapter 33, verse 1, quote, Hoi shoded ve'ata lo shadud uvoged ve'lo vagdubo, ka'atimcha shoded tushad, kanotcha livgod yivgeduvach. As in episode 96, we have alliteration and assonance with that d sound in shoded, which occurs seven times in this verse, and the e-u combination that we have in shoded, then shadud, followed by voged, and then vagdu, and a colorful image on top of that. Quote, ha, you ravager who are not ravaged, you betrayer who have not been betrayed. When you have done ravaging, you shall be ravaged. When you have finished betraying, you shall be betrayed. This verse is tightly structured in these parallels, the first half of each phrase reverberating and echoing into the second half, and the second phrase following a similar compact structure. Even the odd verb construction of kahatimcha, which means when you finish, is mirrored in the second half of the phrase with the verb kanlotcha, which also means when you finish in the same active causative verb form, except with a different root. The verse presents a warning in its explication of a particular logic. What I mean by a particular logic is that once you unleash this kind of behavior in the world, once you shatter the norms in this way, what you have introduced into the world does not just flow away from you. You are not immune to what you have wrought. I guess you could call this karma or a boomerang or measure for measure, midah keneged midah, or just plain old divine justice. In other words, one who engages in evil behavior will ultimately fall victim to the same apparatus of evil. The ravager will be ravaged, the betrayer will ultimately be betrayed. This compact structure reminds me of another alliterative flourish, a dictum summarizing a statement of law in Tractate Babakama 7a in the Babylonian Talmud, Hagonev Miganav Patur, which also has an interesting logic. If you are not immune to what you have wrought, then the thief, according to the Talmud, must pay a penalty of kefil. That is, the thief must compensate his victim to the tune of the damage he himself tried to wreak on his victim, that is, double. However, according to Babakama, if you steal from a thief, you do not have to pay kefil. I guess the logic here is that of Yeshayahu, that the robber will eventually be robbed. 
But the sages of the Talmud also indicate that the reason why a thief pays kefel is that it has to do with the original owner of the stolen item, how they valued their stuff and their despair over the theft of their stuff. A thief has no such qualms, no sense of value for the item stolen, nor does he have despair over the theft. Why would he? Thieving is his profession. And our third and final course. Or more like... The Ultimate Evil. <laughs> in episode 93, the Babylonians were touted as the ultimate evil. In episode 96, it was Moab, and here it's Edom. The thing is, when you hand out the title of most evil ever to more than one nation, it tends to weaken the title's rhetorical punch. And when you talk about the most evil ever, pretty soon talk circles the toilet bowl and you get to... Well, yeah, him too. I was going to say Hitler, who was by far probably the most wicked evil man in, in modern history. But pretty soon after the end of World War II, other folks were being called Hitler too, besides Hitler, of course. In 1956, the U.S. Secretary of State uh, said Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser had a Hitlerite personality. In 1971, George McGovern called Nixon a warmonger like Hitler. In 1986, Castro called Ronald Reagan Hitler for bombing Libya. And then once the internet kind of happened, everyone pretty much got called Hitler at some point, even me. This phenomena has been described by Godwin's Law. I discussed Godwin's Law in episode 19 and 39, but rather than have you scroll back in the feed, here is the definition again. <clears throat> As an online discussion grows longer, the probability of a comparison involving Nazis or Hitler approaches one. So, everyone's eventually Hitler, which at some point will wear the whole Nazi-Hitler thing out, don't you think? So I would use that epithet or the ultimate evil judiciously, save it for a special occasion, but also don't be too reserved with it because if you never use it, then when you really want to, it, it might not land the way you want. You know, how folks say pick your battles, which often means keep your mouth shut? A lot of folks will hold back and hold back and hold back because they're waiting for the right battle. And what ends up happening is they just kind of sit out all the time. They forgot to actually pick a battle. So perhaps Yeshayahu is not overplaying the ultimate evil card because Edom and its stand-ins, be they Assyrian, Babylonian, Moabite, or eventually Roman, are legitimately wicked and oppressive. And they legitimately deserve a sound drubbing from God. The hope is, Yeshayahus and Yirmiyahus and Ovadias and the Psalmists and Ezekiels, etc., that God actually picks this battle and settles it properly. With all the losses, we could use one in the win column. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes Store, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. Or, if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels, either on a one-time or monthly basis, and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 99 when we continue in the book of Isaiah with chapters 36 through 39.